Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 8. I want to read to you again that chapter that we looked at just a couple of weeks ago. And I'm going to read to you the whole chapter again. Um, we've been in a series on, on the, the Nazarites in Scripture, which has been a, a focus on a few characters in the Bible who had this sort of distinguishing characteristic in their life that they were set apart for God's service in a unique way. And uh, there were certain marks that, that accompanied that. They, had to, they weren't allowed to cut their hair. They, they grew it long. They weren't allowed to drink alcohol or eat anything from a vine. And uh, they weren't allowed to touch any dead bodies, which is fine with me. I'm really in for that. So um, these guys were the, Samson, Samuel, and John the Baptist. And so far, we've covered the story of Samson. We've been in this series um, so far just looking at the, the story of Samuel and at some point in January, I expect we'll, we'll pick up the story of John the Baptist. But I want to return to um, one of the, the closing episodes in Samuel's life, which is here in First Samuel chapter 8. So let's read that here. Um, he's led Israel for decades at this point. He's led as a judge. He's led in a fairly uneventful way, which I think is a good thing. If not much is said, it's often a good thing because it means that he was just quietly getting on with his duties. But as he comes to old age, it all turns a little bit sour. And something bitter sets in, in the mind and the heart of the people and in, in the heart of the nation. And they come to him, as you'll see in this passage with this request, appoint for us a king. They didn't have a king prior to this. Samuel's title was as a judge. And he was a prophet specifically. He, he heard from God. But they want something different. They want a military ruler. And it represents a, a massive turning point in the story of the nation. Of course, there'll be good and bad that will flow from this. Amazing kings, but also dreadful kings, if you know the story of the nation. And of course, it will culminate in the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ. So I recognize that this chapter is one of the most important chapters in terms of the storyline of the Bible. But I say all that by way of context to understand what's going on here. Let's read 1 Samuel chapter 8. It says this. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, and you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He'll take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. 
He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He'll take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you shall cry out because of your king whom you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. They said, no, but there shall be a king over us so that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. And Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Let me pray. Father, in turning again to you and listening to your word, we want to have hearts that are attentive, ears that are open, and minds to be able to imagine and conceive and understand the things that you would say to us. We pray, Lord, that your voice will be heard and that the Spirit will accompany what's said in such a way, Lord, that you bring about change in, our, in the inside. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as I said, uh, in working through this series on these unique individuals, um, we've been examining these unique characters. And part of my desire and intention in wanting to walk through uh, these accounts has partly just been to provoke and ignite and stir up something of a vision for devoted living, what it means to live for God in unconditional surrender. And, uh, I, you know, I think back to significant moments in my life, I can think of turning points when I felt like God was provoking me in that way, stirring me in that way, and how it can lead to a change of direction, a different trajectory in your life to come when God begins to awaken new desires within you. And that's something, of course, that we need to continually happen in our lives. So partly just to provoke that, that longing that can bring about change within you. But also then with the understanding that when, when our lives are devoted to God more completely, more fully, we become more useful to him. I think that God has us on earth for a purpose and for a reason. And it's certainly true when you look at the lives of the Nazarites that part of the reason why God awakened a, this devotion to him was in order to use them for his service. God wants to use us for his service. And in order to be useful to him, he has to first get hold of us on the inside. He has to have our hearts. And so these are the things that I'm, I'm longing for within us, within you as individuals, also within us as a church, that we be people who are devoted to God, but then also used by God in all the many contexts in which we're placed outside of the church walls and, of course, within. And so last time we began to open up this particular episode in Samuel's life, it's quite a sad episode. And I was showing you how, on the one hand, this devotion to God, as it's modeled in Samuel, is what qualifies him for leadership. And certainly that's a theme that's just a powerful theme throughout the series. When, when people are, are entirely devoted to God, God uses them, especially in areas of leadership. And then with that comes this other side to it. But Samuel also then experiences rejection. And these things seem to go hand in hand. They're part and parcel of what it means to live a life for God. That on the one hand, God will use you and he'll raise you up and he'll 
they'll put you in positions of influence or of leadership. On the other hand, to stand with them for God and to do so with abandon will position you in such a way that you'll experience rejection. It has to happen. It always happens in some way or form. Now, this is what we were looking at last time, but I wanted to return to this story and really begin to unpack something of the second half of this chapter with a view to just understanding just the depths of insight that we can gain here around the whole theme of what, what is godly leadership. I think that this is a particular chapter that speaks into this as you see the, the kind of the sun setting on the life of a particularly godly leader and the beginning of a new dawn for Israel, but actually what will end up to be a very difficult time for them as they make this terrible decision around appointing and anointing a king who will actually fail them. And God begins to speak into this, and he speaks prophetically into this. And so it begins to help us understand God's mind and heart around what leadership is, what it's meant to be and do, and what specifically godly leadership is in Scripture. This is what I want to look at this with you. And I must underline right at the outset that I believe this is an extraordinarily important subject for Christians to wrestle with. What is godly leadership? And the reason why I believe that is because when you consider the way in which God works in the world, you can almost never see him acting apart from or outside of or without the involvement of people. God works in and through leadership. He works through agency of people who are his servants in Scripture. It happens constantly. I think you can see this right at the beginning of the Bible in terms of the way God spoke to Adam and Eve, appointed them as the pinnacle of creation, told them that they would have dominion over the world. He put leaders on the earth in order to enact and fulfill his will. And God doesn't seem to do much of his work outside of the influence of people, which means suddenly you look at your life in a different light, don't you? It makes it to provoke you and to ask, cause you to ask the question, God, what do you want to do in and through me? Why am I here? What is the influence or the leadership that you are calling me to exercise in the short time that I have here on this earth? And it seems to me that this, this theme of leadership is true just at about every level of life. It's true when you just think about your own life in isolation. But as God begins to bring about his change in you, one of the changes he wants to bring within you is is the ability to lead yourself. And so the kingdom of God begins to take shape within your own life as you lead yourself. If we move outwards to the family, godly families, families in which you can see the grace of God powerfully at work in every member, often is under the gracious leadership of a family spiritual head. It happens through leadership. It's, it's true in churches, it's true in communities, it's true in nations, it's true even in workplaces. Wherever you see something of the grace of God at work and the, the way in which God brings about transformation and change, it happens through people. And therefore, this is a subject we're interested in and we need to be focused upon. I'd even put it as strongly as this. When you pray the prayer, as I hope you do often, when you pray Christ's prayer, the Lord's prayer, and it has in, that, in it that line where you, you pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What exactly are you praying for? 
And I think a significant part of the answer to that question is you are praying for God to raise up leaders. You're praying for God's work to be worked out through his people. And maybe you're even praying, God, use me. Use me. So I don't think we can really overstate the significance, the importance, the vital um, nature of this theme. What is godly leadership? And in order to answer this, I'm going to just approach it from a few angles. I want to look at, first of all, the ideal that God describes in Scripture in relation to this whole theme of kingship specifically. Then we want to think about man's failure, God's ideal, man's failure, before finally thinking about God's solution to that problem. So let's begin here with the ideal. You need to just grab your Bible in your hand and just flick back to the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17. We're going to be, go there in just a moment or two. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Here's the question I'm asking. How does God himself describe the ideals, the patterns, the shape of the kind of leadership that he wants on earth? What, the way in which he wants leaders to, to um, live. What does he require? And I'm not so much interested here in, in terms of the externals, the skills, the abilities, the credentials that allow a person to do their role well. Of course, that's important. If you, are a, if you are a judge, it's important that you know the law. If you're the head of a maths department, it's important that you are familiar with mathematics. There are certain ways in which you can be uniquely positioned and skilled and qualified for your specific area of influence and where God has put you. But that isn't actually what we're thinking about here. I want to go deeper than that. And this is what the Bible does. It so often just bypasses some of those externalities and gets right to the heart of things. Focuses more on character. Focuses more on core identity issues. The foundations of what makes a person a person. And there is a passage here in Deuteronomy 17 that, that speaks into this vividly because it's a situation that, that directly parallels what's going on in 1 Samuel 8. What's happening in 1 Samuel 8? The nation, having up to this point had no king, are coming to... Samuel, and they're saying, give us a king. Hundreds of years earlier, this exact situation was predicted in the law of God. And it's here in, Deut- in Deuteronomy 17. And there God describes the kind of leadership that he desired for the king. And so we can read these two chapters side by side. They're directly connected with each other. The ideal that God lays out in Deuteronomy 17 before we see the tragic failure that emerges in in 1 Samuel 8. So just cast your eyes down. It's in Deuteronomy 17 verse 14. This is where we see. It begins in this way. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you and you possess it and dwell in it, then and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So this is the passage in which God begins to describe what is the kind of leadership he wants for his people. And there are three things that emerge as we read on in this, in this, in this section here. Three things that emerge, in my view, as the key characteristics of godly leadership that are described here. And here they are. First of all, submission. What God describes here is the first most important qualification for, for leadership under his rule and reign, which is a life submitted to him. And here's how it's expressed here. Look again at verse 15. 
It says, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Now, this wasn't to do with any kind of xenophobia or racial issues or any of those kinds of things, this distinction between a brother and a foreigner. That wasn't the point. The point always when you see this distinction between an Israelite and a non-Israelite in Scripture It's to do with whether a person belongs to the covenant or not, whether they belong to God's covenant people or not. And God is saying, before he says anything else, he's saying the most important thing about a leader enacting his will in this world is that they be someone who belongs to him. Their life is submitted to him. They're surrendered to him completely. Now, this is important to take note of because obviously... Being a believer does not in and of itself make you a competent leader. And the reverse is also true, that when you look outside of the world, you can see many, many examples of extremely competent, qualified, excellent leaders who do not belong to God, who do not have a relationship with God, who are not believers in any sense. But the reason why I think this is stress is because you've got to think, what is God's mission in the world? God's mission in the world is the invasion of his kingdom, the, 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 the rule and reign of, of Christ pervading and filling all things. And it seems obvious then, doesn't it, that in order for God to take hold of all things, for his rule, his dominion to be experienced and to be expressed on planet earth, it has to come through those who are surrendered to him. This is the fundamental thing. Then he shows us something else. He also then begins to speak about the character. And I think what's being described here is the dimension of self-control. So if the first thing is submission to God, the second is self-control. That in order to be qualified for leadership under God, a person must gain mastery over their what the Bible describes as the flesh, sinful, lustful desires, the longings and and desires that emerge from within us which are actually contrary to God's will, that are even um, antagonistic to his will. And this is how it's described here as we read on. I think what he's he's describing here are actually the big three that we know are the, the major areas where people fall in leadership, which are money, sex, and power. I'm not sure where that trio was first coined or first described or identified them through that language. But money, sex, and power, almost every scandal, almost every failure, almost every catastrophe in leadership can be categorized by a failure in one of those or in more than one of those areas of money, sex, or power. And all of these areas are described here in this passage. Look at at what he says in verse 16. He says, first of all, that this king must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. The acquiring of many horses is basically military language. It's the depiction of a, a king who's seeking to grow in military might and strength and therefore whose heart is becoming captivated by power. He goes on and says, verse 17, he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. 
So if power was one of the great sort of traps that might capture a king then as it does now, another one was sex. The lustful desires when they're enabled and inflamed by opportunity in a position of power could be the downfall of a king. And you read on in the story of scripture and you'll discover that is exactly true. That even even David, one of the greatest kings, fell in this specific way. And his son Solomon, who reigned after him, ended up marrying hundreds of women. And of course, it, it begins to cause a rot to set into the kingdom. There's power, there's money, there's sex. And then he mentions another one here. It says, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. Money. So what we're seeing here is this kind of picture that's coming into focus, that when God says, listen, this is the type of king that I want, it's interesting, isn't it, how he, he just completely ignores questions of competency, the kind of things that you would put on your CV if you were applying for a role. And if you were applying for the role of king, what would you put on your CV? Well, there are certain competencies that allow you to, to, to take that measure of responsibility. God looks past all of those things and goes straight to the character. And says, not only must he belong to me, be submitted to me, he also also be a man who is full of self-control. He knows how to, to bring his desires into submission to God. Why? Well, because my understanding is this. That the more you are raised up in life to higher positions of influence or power, the fault lines in your character are more likely to be exposed through the inflaming and the aggravating dynamics of high stress and also the opportunities that become open to you. In other words, people who are flawed in small ways when they're small people tend to become flawed in giant ways as they're raised up into higher positions of influence and power. The shocking thing is, I think, that when you, when you consider in your mind and imagination the stories of particularly terrible leaders, perhaps in the contemporary world, but also in history, men especially, typically, who failed in these areas of money, sex, and of power, scandalous, oppressive, abusive leaders... When you think about them, and we easily label them as monsters in our minds, don't we? The reality is that if you strip away their, if they had lived in another timeline, say, in which they hadn't attained positions of power, they might have been no different from you or I. There's something about the exposure, there's something about the elevation, there's something about the promotion that causes small cracks of character to become great crevices. You know, from time to time, you'll hear of um, these rockets being sent up. You know, like SpaceX are sending dozens of them up all the time, aren't they? And you'll hear about failed launches or launches that are aborted because an engineer discovers a hairline crack in some component within the rocket. And let's say it's a manned aircraft. If you're an astronaut on that thing and you know there's a hairline crack somewhere, you don't care how small that crack is, you are not pressing launch, are you? What the Bible's teaching us here is that when these hairline cracks exist, 
they become these great crevices and lead to self-destruction, the destruction of others, the kinds of catastrophes that occur when greater maturity and responsibility and power is attained in life. And God's describing all of this. Submission, self-control. And the last thing he mentions here in terms of the ideal, the image of the ideal king is this one. I think it's, it's such a stunning vision. It's scholarship, a kind of studiousness. I just want to read to you this last section of the chapter here from verse 18. It says, When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. Now keep in mind here, friends, this is a few millennia before, a couple of millennia at least before, the printing press has been invented in Germany. So how, do you, how does the law of God get reproduced or multiplied? Well, you copy it by hand. And here's the instruction. In order for a king to rule according to God's ideal, he, the first job he has is he's got to take the law, the Torah, and he's got to copy it out letter by letter, laboriously into multiple scrolls that then would belong to him. It says then that it shall be with him. And this is not some kind of pocket Bible like you have or even on your app on your phone. These are multiple large scrolls that he must have had to make available to him all the time. And he shall read it in all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord that is God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. I find this a captivating vision. Remember, this is a king. This is not a prophet. This is not the role of a priest. This is what we would think of as a position of civil government or service, But what God is saying is necessary for a leader within his kingdom is that they be a scholar. That they be devoted to his word. That their heart be attentive, their ears listening to the voice of God in order to gain wisdom, in order to gain instruction, in order to be shaped by, formed by, produced by God's word in order to be useful for him and to enact his will. Biblical leadership is under the authority of God, after all, in order to then do what he wills. And the same is true for you and me. Wherever God has put you, you can only enact his will where you are to the degree that you have been shaped by him. This isn't just something that applies to kings. This applies down to every level of influence and of leadership in every sphere in which we have been placed Now, I think you can see this example when we think about kings in the story of Scripture, that the best examples of kings are those whose hearts were dedicated to the Word of God. A couple of the standout examples of that are David and later Josiah. That David, certainly in the earlier part of his reign, where you see the grace of God at work through him, one of the standout characteristics of David is his heart for God and his desire to listen to God's Word. It's there in in one of the psalms he wrote, in Psalm 19, famous psalm that describes devotion to the word of God. And he says there, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. So here he is writing a love poem about God's word, about the Torah that he studied morning and night. 
And he closes off that beautiful psalm where he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is an intimate prayer in which he's saying, God, shape me from the inside. Change the way I think, the way I feel, by producing in me pleasing thoughts that come out of my mouth and that dwell in my heart. And it's only out of this interior life, this soul that is shaped by God and by God's word that David is enabled then to enact the will of God in his external opportunities and circumstances. The same is true for you, friend, and for me. Another example here is in, uh, in 2 Kings where it describes the story of Josiah. Now, this is many years after David, and the story of the nation has gone up and down according to whether people have been drawing near to God and his word or forgetting God's word. And they're at a point here where they have lost the word of God. They literally have lost it. They don't, they've not read it. You think, how can that happen? Well, it happens easily, doesn't it? It happens when our Bibles end up on the shelf gathering dust and then get forgotten. They're not passed on to generation after generation before long. There's ignorance. And that happened in the history of Israel. And then one day, the scroll of the word of God is discovered within the temple structures. They find it, some, some cupboard hidden somewhere. And as they pull it out and they begin to read again the account of their history and the way, the will of God that's described there in God's word, it's read out to Josiah. And Josiah immediately calls the people, the nation, all the nation to um, himself and begins to read out the entirety of God's word. It must have taken many, many hours as he reads out the first five books of Moses, the Torah, And it culminates in a moment in 2 Kings chapter 23 when the people of God covenant themselves to God again. They're saying, God, we've we've forgotten you. We've wandered away from you. We've, We've abandoned your law. We've not done your will. We've not been your people. We want to put that right. And when that happens, friend, that is what you describe as revival. Revival is the the rapid enlivening or awakening or coming alive of people to God in a fresh way. You can have personal revival when the Holy Spirit moves on your life and the dead and dying embers of your spirituality come alive again in in new life. And sometimes that happens rapidly in groups of people. You can have churches, cities, nations that experience revival as the Spirit of God is breathing on the dying embers and people are awakened to him again. And almost always that kind of awakening happens because people hear God's voice again. He's speaking through his word, by his spirit. And a deep grief for sin emerges and a longing to be right with God and a consecration to live for him. And friend, all I'm trying to help you to see is that for the life to come through leadership, the leader himself or herself must be, must be, a student of God's word. There's an account in our own history of a man called Alfred, King Alfred. He was alive in the 800s AD and grew up 
uh, sorry, ruled from Winchester in the south where I actually grew up. At the bottom of the high street in Winchester, there's a big statue of King Alfred. And one of the things that distinguished Alfred, apart from many of the other kings who had gone before him, was this very mark. Though so many of the kings at the time had been illiterate, they couldn't read or write. Alfred brought a scholar into his palace to teach him how to read and write in Latin. Everything was in Latin in those days, even if that wasn't your mother tongue. But it was the language of written work. And so he begins studying Latin so that he can read and he can write. And the effect is that he's growing in his understanding. And his, this same scholar becomes his biographer later on. He writes about a moment of triumph when he finally successfully can translate and read a passage and, uh, from, from the Latin original into, into the English or Anglo-Saxon he was speaking at the time. And at that point, Alfred is 40 years of age. So it's obviously been a labor of love for him to attain this level of scholarship. And he's never going to become a brilliant scholar. But it becomes a fulcrum point in his own life, in his own leadership, that affects the nation. He brings scholars into the palace. He establishes monasteries, which are kind of like seats of learning. They're equivalent of universities today. If you want to perpetuate learning, you needed monasteries in those days. He instructs judges that they must also themselves be men of learning. And of course, in their learning, one of the primary things that they would have been reading was God's word in the Latin. And so justice and righteousness begins to trickle down into the nation because of his leadership as a man submitted to God's word and then putting in position men who were also submitted to God's word. And he also designs a law code, a new law code, modeled on God's law in the Old Testament. An interpretation of it in a way of beginning to allow the word of God to kind of filter down into the way that the nation was, was run and the law system. And it's difficult, isn't it, to think about how the extent or the degree of influence that that might have had, that that, that has had over the centuries. Of course, I'm, I'm sure it wasn't radical or rapid change at the time, but those are the kind of seeds that you put in the soil, which over centuries have given birth to so much of the, the righteousness and the goodness that God has expressed or poured out upon us as a people. And it comes through a leader. And the challenge is to you, friends, when you think about this model, this example I'm describing to you, are these things true of you? A life submitted to God, a life seeking to exercise the self-control and the mastery, even in the small and secret places, so that when God elevates you and uses you, these don't become great crevices in your life. Are you seeking to study God's word, be shaped by it, so that the meditations of your heart are pleasing to him? This is the pattern. Now, we need to then turn back to what we see here in, in, in 1 Samuel 8. If that was the ideal that God has set out, of course the reality is that it quickly descends into this tragedy of failure, the failure that we see. There, it's been repeated many times since. And what we're describing here is how ideals collide with reality. You know this in your own life. We're entering the Christmas season. Is there ever a time of year when your ideals of what Christmas can and should be are more mismatched from reality, right? 
You know, my imagination of what Christmas is is me sat with my, with my pipe in my hand, legs crossed on the sofa, sipping a glass of sherry, children just quietly playing on the floor while music is in the background, just peace. I'm eating, but I'm not getting fatter. It's a wonderful scene, and I, you feel the, the coziness of the scene, but of course the reality of Christmas is something very different. It's tiredness, it's lots of tears in our household when kids are overtired and stay up too late. Uh, it's the fraught, the exhaustion, and of course the waistline. Reality and, and ideals collide, and the result is all, all often depressing to us. The same is true in, in romantic situations, isn't it? If you're a single person, many of you are, probably your notion of what is romantic love is wrong. That you have in your head a vision of what the future will look like that is in kind of soft focus. The sun is always just setting. You're skipping into, into the horizon with your beloved giggling in each other's ears. And you just feel that constant sense of pleasure and delight in one another. Of course, as soon as you enter into a romantic relationship, there may be those moments in which that's true, but pretty soon you irritate each other. There's, there's, there's frustration that creeps in. There can be bitterness, there can be unforgiveness, there can be misunderstanding, there can be all kinds of ways in which friction, grit gets into the relationship. Of course, not in my marriage, I'm just describing generally what happens. And the, the, the difference between the ideal and the reality is something very sobering. It brings you down to earth. And this is what we're seeing constantly in Scripture. The ideal of what God describes in his law, especially, meets the reality of our human flaws, our failings, our ineptitude. And the tragedy of what we encounter here, that far from God's ideal for Israel, that because when they come to God with this demand, we, or to Samuel, we want a king. This isn't a moment of triumph and of joy, as it should have been. It's a moment that's been poisoned because it comes from a longing, actually, to emulate the nations around them. They say, we want a king like the nations around us. He'll go into battle for us and win our battles. And therefore, it's also a turning their back on God. It's putting confidence in man and no longer looking in trust to God. And so they're saying, as I described it last time, they want the kingdom, the security, the peace, the prosperity of the kingdom. They just don't want the king anymore. They don't want God himself. And a poison is set into them. God warns them and says, if you want a king, this is what he's going to be like. And what he describes there are the kinds of failures that are in many ways the exact antithesis of the ideal that he had described. If the ideal was this heart surrender to God and self-control and listening to his word, the reality, God says, will be a king who will just take Take, 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 take from you. Six times that language is repeated here. He'll take your sons and appoint them to run before his chariots. In other words, he'll begin to take and accumulate power to himself. He'll take your fields, your vineyards, and distribute them to his loyal followers, his cronies. It's corruption begins to breed in places of power just as it does today. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll Pamper himself in sensuality, in other words. He'll take everything from you and you'll become his slaves. That's what it says here in this passage. Why? 
And one thing that strikes me when I read this is just how nothing has changed. Here we are, almost 3,000 years later, and the human heart is no different now than it was then. You think of how often our news screens are full of the images of politicians who've been offering contracts to their friends, their cronies. Or politicians who can change their policies on a pinhead. They can rotate just according to the whims of the people because they're fundamentally just people-pleasing narcissists. Not servants, necessarily. I know there are exceptions, but you think about how often this stuff happens. Think about the, the stories of bosses and executives who basically make the path to promotion available to women through sexual favors. Or how frequent it is for us to hear of the obscene, grotesque, disgusting levels of greed when executives pay themselves far money, more money than any person could ever dream was necessary in order to, to live. And often while you know, ignoring those in the lower rungs in their own organizations. And thinking closer to home, how even households can be led by anger and abuse. And fathers are so often just a rule of terror under their own roof. Even pastors their flaws and failings are exposed more often than, than I want to hear of, <laughs> too often for comfort. You think even of abusive and using leaders in churches who just use people to, to build their own platforms. It makes you sick to the pit of your stomach. And the question is why? Why, why is this so endemic? Why does this happen? And I don't think it's very difficult for us to, to get to the answer. It's because of sin. It's because of sin in us. It's because of sin in leaders. Especially problematic in a day and age like ours when too often we allow charisma to trump character. And of course that becomes a vehicle for sin to gain full ascendancy in a person's life. And not only sin in leaders, but also sin in us. There's a saying, isn't there, that people get the leaders they deserve. And I know that there are exceptions to this. There are people who are genuinely victims. I get that. But equally, you look at what's happening here in 1 Samuel 8. They hear the warning and they still say to Samuel, no, we will have a king. Why? Because they were captivated by glory. By the false promises of a king by the imagination that was swirled in their hearts of what a king would do for them and accomplish for them. They were captivated by that. And they listened. They disregarded the warning. The Bible's clear, friend, that we need to always maintain a healthy suspicion of ourselves and even of others to the extent that we don't put our trust in people, but only put our trust in the living God. Psalm 146, put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation.
It goes on and said, blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and so on. The Bible's saying to us emphatically, if you put your hope in yourself or in others, you'll always be disappointed in the end because we're flawed. We're tragically, desperately, and deeply flawed. Now this brings me to the final thing I want to say, which is the solution that God offers us. Here we have this incredible tension that I think is, is one of the great themes of Scripture, actually. The tension between the need we have for godly leadership in order to usher in the rule and the reign of, 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 of God on earth and the reality that leaders fail and disappoint that we fail, that none of us is adequate or qualified or competent to the extent that we need to be. What a horrible reality that is to face. People will always fail and disappoint us. We've become really aware of this, haven't we, in recent years with the big debate that's, that's blown up around the removal of statues of famous figures from the history books in our high streets and, and colleges named after figures and so on. Because the more we look back in history, the more we realize, oh, they believe that or they did that. So the debate emerges. Well, can we really honor these, these people? Can we honor these men and have their statues? adorning our buildings and our streets? Can we do that? And shouldn't we just pull them down? And on the one hand, this part of me thinks, well, if we start pulling them down, where will we stop? Because we're flawed too. And future generations will look on, back on us and think, what on earth were they doing and believing and practicing in that time? Absolute primitive, you know, wicked pagans that they were. And... I think that's reality. On the other hand, I think to myself, well, maybe we shouldn't have put the statues up to begin with. Maybe we shouldn't be so ready to honor leaders, given that it only takes time for the truth to emerge. You know, one of the things that you know, one of the sad realities that I think we're all facing now is that every time a well-known Christian leader passes away, there's a sort of momentary holding of the breath as we wait to learn whether some scandal might erupt that had remained hidden until then. And it's sad, and I don't want to become cynical but isn't this the great tension that we live with between the yearning, the need, the longing for leadership and then the reality? We are flawed. And this, friends, is why when you understand the storyline of Scripture and these passages in particular, they all point to one solution, God's solution. It's the incarnation of the Son of God. The gift that God gave us was a baby born to be a king. The Lord Jesus Christ fulfills the ideal that's laid down in Deuteronomy 17. If it described there, 
someone who would belong to God and having a heart that submitted to him, what does Jesus say of himself? He says, I only do what I see the Father doing. In other words, he says, my every move, my every action is a mirror of the will of God. Such was the surrender and submission of his heart. If the image of the ideal king in Deuteronomy 17 was one of a life of self-control, mastery, so that the fractures of character don't destroy, the Lord Jesus Christ is the only man who's ever lived who is tempted yet without sin. You think of these three areas of money, sex, and power in his life. Did money have a hold on Jesus? No, he, was, he chose voluntary, homeless life. He said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He didn't let money get a hold on him. Did Jesus succumb to any sexual temptation? No, on the contrary, those women who had been used and abused sexually were drawn to him because he was the safe man to be around. He didn't look at them that way. He didn't hold them in his imagination that way. So when you discover prostitutes around Jesus, you find them drawn to him because there they find themselves in a place of safety, worshiping him, weeping at his feet, washing them with with their tears. Did he hold power to himself? And the answer is no. He was born in in abject poverty. And when he finally entered Jerusalem triumphantly a week before his crucifixion, he entered on the back of a donkey. When that passage describes for us someone whose heart is fully surrendered to the word of God, isn't that exactly what we see in the Lord Jesus? How even as a boy... 11 or so years of age. His parents go on a trip to Jerusalem to fulfill the festival requirements, and as they're heading out of town, somehow they forget their oldest son. Now, the more children you get, the easier this becomes. I can only assume they had a big family, but somehow they forget Jesus. And then eventually, miles down the road, they think, oh, no, we've forgotten Jesus. They must have been in a crowd as well, so let's just give them maximum leniency here. And what happens is they turn around... They go back, they search for him across the city. And where do they find him? They find him in the temple grounds, discussing fine details of interpretation of the law of God with the most eminent scholars of his day. And if that was him as a boy, what a formidable presence he was as a man when he opened his mouth and began to teach as one who had authority, it says, who had so consumed the word of God that it it became inseparable from him. He was the living word of God after all. As described in, in John 1, the Logos, the word incarnate. Christ is the ideal. And then when in 1 Samuel 8, you read all of these descriptions of the way in which human sin will take, 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 take. What does Jesus say of himself? He says, the Son of Man came not to be served, in other words, to take, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. I think that, that verse, that saying can be written as the banner or the mandate of Christ's entire life and mission on this earth. And when, friends, I'm just telling you all this stuff because I want 
your hearts to be captivated and to hold him in awe. And he comes to you and says, listen, to be my follower, you must, you must give up your life so that you can gain it. Don't hesitate. The kingdom, of course, that Jesus rules is not like the kingdoms that we see in history or in Israel's history. It's hidden. But that doesn't make it less real. Christ commands the allegiance of many, many, many millions of people on this earth. Is that not a real kingdom? In a sense, because of its hiddenness, it's a superior kingdom. An earthly king could just rule the external circumstances of our lives. It can rule with justice and law and order and peace. But the kingdom that Christ inaugurated with his arrival and his, his accomplishments on earth is an internal kingdom. It's a kingdom in which his rule is, 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 is exercised in your heart and then flows out into the outer dimensions of your life. And the extraordinary thing about this, friend, is that this means that the way in which the rule and reign of Jesus expands in the earth is through you. By getting hold of your life. By calling you into submission and surrender and discipleship to himself. By being the king within your heart, the will of Christ and the kingdom of Christ begins to take shape in you and then around you as you influence the world in the ways in which Christ calls you. And so we see the gradual but persistent expansion of the rule and reign of King Jesus. So that as Isaiah said it, that of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. There'll be no end to the increase of Christ's rule in this world. That is exactly what we are seeing even before our very eyes with every life baptized in the baptism pool. Every mouth that becomes a worshiper says, I want to follow Jesus. Every family in which you begin to see the gospel shaping the relationships within the family. Every workplace in which the principles of Christ's governance begin to change the relationships and the order of the workplace. All the laws that reflect Christ's will. The kingdom is growing and you're a part of it. Is Christ your king?